Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. All right. All right. Well, on the heels of the pink wormy thing, let's, um, <laughs> let's plunge right in. So, <laughs> so I would like to start by talking about the photograph. Um, it's a kind of gutsy thing to take this, I, I mean, part of the book is about the, the sort of iconic status of the photograph and its effect on the people around the photograph. But it, before there was the book, there was the actual photograph. So um, it's this photograph, right, for those who don't know, um, Migrant Mother by Dorothea Lange, a photograph of um, Florence Owens Thompson, a migrant mother in, in California in 1936. 32, 32, 36. 36, it was taken. Um, what, first of all, did that give you pause? And secondly, I'm really curious about that as inspiration, about the, the photograph as inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if you can talk um, about well, that. Well, I'll talk about the inspiration first, and then I'll talk about the pause, <laughs> um, which there was much of. It's risky to ask a writer a about pause. Year of pause. Um, I had seen the photograph a million times, as I think so many of us have, because it's so ubiquitous. Probably the first time I saw it was, I'm sure, in some history book. Um, but then, you know, you see it every time the depression is evoked, invoked, and you, um, it's on postage stamps, it's everywhere. So it was certainly part of kind of like the Jungian, you know, symbolic universe in my mind. Um, but the most recent time I'd seen it was about four years ago when I went to a museum exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and it was part of a um, exhibit of Western photography. And you know, once again, I was sort of drawn to it as we all are. And there's something about it that's so compelling and magnetic. But this time, what appealed to me was not simply the photograph. It was the piece of information next to the photograph on the curatorial label, which said that the woman in the photograph had not revealed who she was until she was sick and dying. Um, and needed money for her health care. And I found that piece of information sort of startling in its implications because I thought, what was her relationship to the photograph that she never said, that's me? Um, especially in this day and age where people claim, you know, celebrity every time they walk out the door. It seems particularly, you know, for someone to, to hide in that way seems particularly shocking. And I thought, well, what is it? Was she ashamed of this photograph? Was she embarrassed by it? Was she disenfranchised by it because she hadn't been paid for it? Was it, what were the complicated feelings that would lead to someone holding that information to herself for 
50 years. Um, so that just sort of started the wheel spinning in terms of what is the mystery of this photograph and what is the life behind that photograph. Um, so what I began to do was to research you know, what was known about the photograph and there's a tremendous amount to know about Dorothea Lange. Wonderful biographies have been written about her and you know, there's t every time you read a book about American photography, you know, there's a lot to know. There's comparatively, by a long shot, very little to know about Florence Owens Thompson, um, I guess unless one were to make a life's work of writing a nonfiction book about her and trying to track down her relatives and all the rest of it, but what's sort of accessible is not that much. Um, kind of the same 12, 20 pieces of information over and over again spun out differently. Um, so I began by sort of think, structuring the book using what I knew of their lives as kind of um, framework. But once I wanted to develop the interiority of the characters, I kind of moved away from the real Dorothea Lange and the real Florence Owens Thompson, both because you know I don't know what they thought or felt, and because I was obviously going to invent situations in which I would have no idea how they thought or felt, and also because what I kind of discovered going along in the process was that the book was about reinterpretation, and that um, which goes to the first part of your question, which is. Did, you know, did it give me pause to take on this photograph? And it did give me pause for a really long time. I would say there was a full six to eight months where all I was doing was thinking about this and a lot of times thinking, can I do this? Am I allowed to do this? Is this okay to do? And what I began to understand as I thought and thought and thought more about it, thought what I was doing was that I understood that um, my job and was not unlike what happens with any historic artifact, which is that it is reinterpreted and recontextualized by anybody who sees it, give, um, in terms of who they are, what subjectivity they bring to it, and in terms of where they are in history, what the world that you're looking at it, where you're standing, looking back at it, and that um, there is no sort of absolute truth to anything. I mean, we know when treaties were struck and we know when wars were fought, but when you get into the kind of, um, you know, the grains of sand of history, it's very hard to um, say this is what happened, this is what someone felt. And so once I began to understand that that was really something that I was not only going to experience writing the book, but it was very much what I was going to write about, my pause ended. And I was, <laughs> I was able to sort of begin to sort of bring to the work my own fictional imagination and make it into something lyric rather than something real. It's interesting um, because it makes for an interesting tension in the book because presumably most readers have seen the photo or are familiar with the photo and certainly the design of the book encodes the, the actual photograph into the fiction and yet we lose sight of the history, right? We lose sight of the biography in um, in the development of um, of the characters. At what point um, in the writing, or what you know, in, in your working on the book, did that happen? Did, did that happen fairly early? Did you use because I know that the, some of the biographical details are similar, but then it does sort of take its own form. Um, at what point did you move stop off thinking of, about Dorothy Lange? Stop Lang thinking about Dorothy Lange and Florence um, Owens Thompson, and did you feel? Um, I don't know. I, I'm curious about the permission question. The um, permission I don't know quite how to phrase huge. it. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I think as soon as I started to write, I had moved away from Dorothea Lange. I think the research that I did in the beginning was really grounded in in the real people, and then once I sort of gave myself permission to write, 
um, they quickly became Mary Coyne and Vera Dare, and I actually stopped looking at the photograph. Um, you know, it's funny, people often say, did you have that photograph on your desk? And I actually didn't. I had a different Dorothea Lange photograph on my desk that had nothing to do with this. Um, I almost need, you know, obviously it was in my mind, and I referred to it occasionally when I needed to, but I, I didn't look at it. I didn't think of it as Dorothea Lange and, and Florence Thompson. I thought of Vera Dare and Mary Coyne. And I think until I was able to make that leap fully, I, I would not have been able to write the book. And the permission aspect is interesting. I mean, you know, I, there's so many books that I admire that do what I did or do it, I mean, you know, Libra, you know, the, uh, the fabulous book by Don DeLillo is, you know, he talks about all those characters and what they, you know, the real people and imbues them with thoughts and feelings and, you know, certainly um, ragtime or, I mean, there's, you know, hundreds of books that do it. Um, so people find different you know, they, they stand in relationship to the real people in terms of their fiction in very different ways. And for me, I needed to sort of make the break, rename them, um, and, and, and invent them in order to write it. I don't think I could have called them Florence and, and, and uh, Dorothea and written a book that I would have, I think I would have had always that ill feeling inside if I had done that. Now, this book's a departure in a variety of ways, I think, for you, partly because it, it's historical. It goes back. It's not, I mean, the other books have been contemporary, um, partly because of this kind of the three-part structure you were talking about, or the three, the three, I don't want to call them narrators because it's all third person, but the three protagonists. Mm -hmm. um, what, are the, what were the challenges of, of, let's start with the historical component. What were the challenges of sort of weaving those historical textures going back to Oklahoma in the, in the 20s or um, migrant workers in California in the 30s and trying to figure out how to um, frame that narratively? Well, you know, what I realized in working on the book was that it's very, it's comparatively easy to research. You can gather so much, you know, but for me, when I read books that are heavily researched and I sometimes I can feel like I'm reading a compendium of the author's research and the book never sort of takes flight for me. It never moves into that place where it's a work of fiction. And what I felt in researching was that any piece of information I used um, was really only valuable in, that, in the way that it would um, illuminate character. And that it didn't really matter, you know, what kind of, you know, what the make of the car was, unless that actually had to do with character and unless the character interacted with that piece of information in a way that would make the reader know more about that character or know more about the character in that time. So for me the research was, I, I did you know way more research than ends up being in this book because um, you know, I didn't need to let everyone know what the kind of gingham cloth that was made and how you made a, you know, how you made bread and, you know, I, who cares? It's like, it, what's important is how is that mother holding that dough? How is she slapping it down on the table? How are, you know, what does the house smell like because of how that um, fire is lit? Those things have to do with character and they inform character and they inform action. So that's pretty much how I thought about the research. You know, I had to then do a lot just so that I felt like I was confident about the time. I mean, you don't want to make these horrible anachronistic mistakes, but um, it really is about, you know, it's, it, I, I mean, I think, and I do this in, with my fiction all the time, I just, it's always at the level of character. It's always about what allows that person to become um, real to a reader. 
And character emerges from, I mean, among other things, from relationships. So there's interest, I mean, I think it's interesting the way that these relationships sort of echo each other. You can see um, in Mary as a young woman, her relationship with her mother or later her relationship with her children. Um, there's certain echoes with Walker's relationship with, say, his daughter um, and kind of that interplay within, that interplay within a family. I wonder if you can talk about that because that's something I've noticed throughout your books, this sort of the dynamics of family. I think it's one of the things that is most sort of consistent throughout your fiction. Yeah. Dave and I get together for coffee quite often and we, we pretend that we're having these high-minded literary discussions, but we really end up doing is just talking about family all the time. And before we came out, I said, this is just going to be like coffee with an audience. And, and Marissa said, said, we can't talk about the kids. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think family fascinates me because um, it is uh, sort of this mystery embedded in everyone's lives. The relationships that you have with the people in your family both form you and they, they are what you strike out against. There are secrets in families that sort of end up being baggage that you carry with you for generations carry with them. So they have almost all the elements of any great drama. You know, they have antagonists and protagonists, and they have secrets, and they have mysteries, and they have, you know, the the, sh the other shoe drops, and the will is opened, and we find out that there was another family. You know, I mean, it really is sort of this endless pool. But I also think that it's kind of, um, in terms of people defining who they are in life, it's something that you're always either you know, it's a push-me-pull-you. You're either hewing to your family or you're you're pulling away from it. It's the thing that, that is like the, it's the standard that we're all in relationship to. So I think for me, somehow, you know, those issues of family, um, I mean, if, if any character has children, it ends up being central to their lives because I see it that way. I don't think that it's ancillary. Um, and because it provides such a rich way to understand identity. Um, the other thing that was really interesting about the book was thinking about motherhood, which is, you know, there are two mothers in this book, and they're very different kinds of mothers. And um, one could, in a very um, kind of uninteresting way, say that Mary is the better mother and Vera is not as good of a mother because she actually, when she starts to work, she sends her kids to foster care. She has really ambivalent relationships about her desire to be a mother. Um, and I'm, I don't actually, it's kind of, that's a very reductive way to look at it. I don't think it's actually true at all. And what interested me to think about and talk about was, you know, in, in society we have this ideal mother. And that ideal mother has to be the selfless, um, all-loving, all-caring person. And that doesn't exist. And so it's interesting to me to write the, ver the varieties of mother and to, to see that there is no black and white, there is no good and bad, that embedded in what we think of as being bad is good, and embedded in what we think of as being good can sometimes be harm. And that really interests me to write about and was really a great way to think about these two women who both struggled with motherhood in very different ways. Well, I will say, it's in this book, it's in other books. I know of no other writer who writes better about the interminable um, nightmare of an uh, endless afternoon with toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> tedium? Um, we say tedium? But I also want to talk about time because I think that one of the things, I mean, it also, it's not just here, but it operates here over a longer stretch of time that we see these relationships, not just 
parent-child relationships, sometimes sibling relationships, but often mother-child relationships over a long period of time. We see um, both of these women, Vera and Mary, as, as young women with young children, and then we see them later as old women um, approaching death with adult, not even adult, but middle-aged um, or even older children in their 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something really interesting about that scope of, of, of time in terms of those relationships. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think what's interesting, I mean, as an adult, you know, child, as many of us are, the relationship is, is so different and it's so altered from when you're a, a young, a child to a young parent. And um, I was interested in sort of seeing what the repercussions of these very intense mother-child experiences for these women when they were young. I mean, Mary Coyne had seven children and she was impoverished and she fed them at times one meal a day and she managed to, you know, they all, and she, they made it through. And then Vera Dare, who, as I said, had these two children and she had varying degrees of, you know, kind of ambivalence about it. Um, so it was just really fascinating to me to then say okay well what is the end result of that what is the you know what is the relationship of these children to the parent um, situation that that I have so described and that people sense what happens and you know and and also trying to make it not again not black and white I mean just because uh, Mary Coyne just because Vera Dare fostered her kids out does not mean that her children dislike her in the same ways, that they each have individual relationships to her that are very much, I mean, every parent has an individual relationship with their child that goes on into adulthood. So I think part of it was just the, you know, my interest in seeing how that sh shifts and what what remains of the of the early relationship and then what is very different in the adult relationship. And I was also interested in this idea of how much do parents owe their children a sense of their history? Um, it's something that the third character, Walker Dodge... A sense of the parents' history. Parents' history, I'm yeah. sorry. That, that the third character, Walker Dodge, is very cognizant of because one of his kids is sort of spinning off the rails and he feels very guilty that he somehow hasn't given her enough of a foundation of, of history because it's something that he's ignored in his life for various reasons. And, and, and Mary in the book at one point consciously hides some of her history from her children and feels very much like it, it is not in their best interest and it's not her job to tell them everything about her. And I'm interested also in that and like how much do parents owe their children of their secrets? Well, it's interesting because I was going to bring up Walker. It's interesting because Walker also feels that he knows very little about his own father, who um, he's sort of looking into. He's looking into his father's life as part of the, the narrative movement of the novel. And he feels that kind of, you know, that, that not even that his father is a mystery, but in a lot of ways that his father is a, a, is a blankness. So we see sort of him trying to react in a certain way with his own daughter. But at the same time, as does Mary, and in many ways as does Vera, they all sort of come to some realization that you're not, you're only responsible for your children to an extent, right? right? That your children ultimately, or you know, people are ultimately responsible um, for themselves. That we, you know, we do what we can or we do what we do, but that it's a much more complicated mix of of influences. Yeah, I think so. Although I think as a parent, probably you feel that intellectually, but you probably still feel that somehow you're responsible. I mean, even if your 60-year-old child yeah. is is having trouble, probably at the same time that you intellectually say you know, they're grown up, they're their own person, you probably still feel that. And I think that given the experiences that both these women go through and that Walker is going through with his own teenage daughter, um, that it's a lot about that. What is the level of responsibility and what is the, you know, and what is not. 
I mean, the thing about parenting is that, you know, we all, we all would like to think that we're sort of sui generis and that we invent ourselves out of thin air, and we really don't. And and so it's that constant tension between, you know, is am I just the, the destiny that was laid out for me by generations and generations? Is that is it inevitable? Am I, am I caught in this kind of, you know, vortex of genetics? Or can I define who I am? Can I be my own person? And I think that's... A qu an unanswerable question, but a worthy question to do battle with in fiction. Okay. I want to go to Walker, but I want to just stay with us for one more question, because the other thing that it raises, which comes back to the photograph, <coughs> is the idea, again, in time. The photograph is just one moment. We think of that photograph, um, whether the fictional photograph or the actual photograph, as somehow defining, right? Because it's the thing that we see, that, that this somehow this woman's entire life is encapsulated in this photograph. But one of the really lovely things about the novel is that the photograph is almost the actual moment of the taking of the photograph is almost incidental. It takes place in a couple of pages, deep in the book. We know um, we've sort of moved around and we see the history and we really see the photograph as just an image of a moment that where there's an entire history on both sides of that moment, right? right. Um, and the same, I think, is true with, um, with these children. Both Mary at one point late in the book talks about how she wished with some of her kids that she had been less um, less of a hard ass, or less of a hard ass realist. I like that she, you know, that, that she was very upfront about, you know, here's what the deal is, right? You, you're not going to grow up to be president. You know, we're going to be lucky if you get two meals tomorrow. So let's just focus on what is, and that she feels that in some way that that's curtailed their sense of um, of hope, and that there's a, a bit of regret, but yet it's part of who um, who she is. So there's always this sense of time and movement through the book, with the photograph as a kind of centerpiece. So I'm curious about how all that came together and. And sort of your thinking about that, about how time. Well, the the, the idea of yeah. the of history, but in history encapsulated in a moment, and how we we tend to think we know things, right. but there's always more. Well, on I either think side. the whole the whole um, excitement for me was, as you say, a, a photograph. A photograph is like a moment trapped in time. So it's like it, it, it's like a piece of past, and. If you just look at the photograph and take it and, and don't think too much about it and just think, oh, there's a picture of a woman and her children, that's one way to relate to that photograph. But if you think about what's around the edges of the photograph, I mean, I'm always interested in what, what's, over, what's next to the person that you're looking at. You know, what, what's, here's the, the subject of this picture, but what's over there? Um, I think about it in film, too. It's like, you know, what, what, what was happening in the cafe next to our protagonist. And so... Um, I'm not really answering this question, but I think that what, what interests me is to sort of not think about just that moment and not think of the moment as being this kind of um, epic thing that is defining, but the, that it really is, is part of the flow of time. And um, what happens before and after is just as important as that moment. And I think that's something that the character of Mary Coyne struggles with too, is that you know she, this photograph has sort of trapped her in amber in the most desperate moment of her life. And it has become the definition of who she is for a lot of people. She has almost like two lives. She has two two person two identities. She has the life that she lives, and you know she goes on to make it and live in a home, and her kids have jobs, and there are grandchildren. But there's also this Mary Coyne that exists only in the imagination of the culture that is her at this really desperate moment, which also we find out in the book has a very uh, uh, an added layer of drama, which I'm not going to reveal. Um, <laughs> So, so it's that question of you know um, that people see us, but they don't know they don't know about the flow of time. They 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 see us at a moment, but they don't understand. They, no one has access to the full 
flow of time. So I think the book is an effort to say, you know, wh what is the moment and how does it fit into the big time scheme, the big timeline. Um, and the passage of time becomes a very important kind of sub-theme in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable if you actually um, use my favorite digital resource and Wikipedia, Florence Owens, Th Owens Thompson, there's a photograph of her and her family taken in 1979 where she's an elderly woman in a pantsuit, right. in a bad 1970s pantsuit, and it's really <laughs> incredible to see that photograph and juxtapose it with the yeah, other. Yeah, and her children are, are you know, middle-aged and they're all looking healthy, and, you know, I mean, when you think about where, you know, they came from, which was also one of the things that really... I mean, this is a little off the topic, but you know, when I was doing the research and I was reading these, you know, first-hand accounts of life in the Depression and especially children's accounts, um, you know, one of the things that struck me was not not the horror and the oh my God, we had to eat dead bird today, but also the joy. That, w that people would remember. They would remember the games they played and they would remember the penny candy that they got and they would remember the family love. And it really, so the book to me is not sort of about the desperation of a time, but it's really about endurance. And endurance is about time. And it, it, so it's about how we endure. And I, I mean, to me, it's a very moving thing that you know, people really in the most desperate situations, they still choose life. You know, we hew towards living and we hew towards love and we hew towards the joy. So um, that was one of the things that kind of made me feel like, okay, I'm not just writing about a desperate situation. I'm really writing about what is it in human nature that endures. So let's talk about Walker a little bit. Sure. Um, he's sort of the the... the the most fictional of the fictional characters in the sense of sort of invented whole cloth. He kind of is the contemporary frame that, that the rest of the story uh, is wrapped around. Where did, at what point did he come into the mix and how did, uh, how did that develop? Well, I always knew there was going to be a third character, um, partially because I think I like threes. I think it's off-putting and it's unbalanced and it's more interesting than something that's just back and forth between two things. Um, and I also felt strongly that there needed to be someone who was looking backwards in the book, that there needed to be a retrospective eye. And um, so, you know, I toyed with different kinds of ways that that character could be. At one point he was a filmmaker, a, you know, there were different things that he did, but then I sort of settled on him being a historian, but a particular kind of historian. He's like a social historian, and what he's really interested in is not the kind of big tent poles of history, but he's interested in the ephemera of history. He's interested in what we talked about before, you know, the, the, the photographs and the stuff that you find in the attics and the newspaper morgues and how to construct the texture of daily life from those things that remain. Um, there's a bunch of really interesting people who do that work now and um, one of the ones who I really uh, admired and read a lot about is this guy named Michael Lisi or Lessie, I don't know how you pronounce it, yeah. who did um, He's amazing, who did yeah. Angel's World and, yeah. um, and um, Wisconsin, Wisconsin Death, Death Trip, Trip. Yeah. and um, so I used him, Walker as sort of a a way to explore the other issues that interested me in the book, you know, issues about history and about how we understand what happened in the past and how we interpret these pieces of ephemera because in fact, you know, the, the photograph migrant mother is a piece of ephemera and um, were it not so famous it would be stuck in somebody's drawer or probably maybe not even exist. So um, I, I wanted him to be sort of in that investigation because it allowed me to sort of explore a lot of the different sort of more overarching themes of the book. Um, but there was also a, a very, you know, human reason that there was a piece of information in the Florence Owens Thompson stuff that I found, which was this kind of very unsubstantiated 
in passing piece of information which said that she had this other child by a someone of more wealth and that she took him took the child back to Oklahoma at a certain point in order to get him away from that guy and this was a piece of information that had I could find nothing else about it but it kind of captured my fancy and um, because and and although I didn't use that same story, I just sort of kept looking at the baby in the arms of the woman in the photograph and thinking about that that piece of information, and and putting those two things together, I kind of developed the the story of Walker and his forebears. Now let's talk about the structure a little bit because it is you know I, I'm curious about I want to talk more about this question of threes because even within that question of threes it's sort of um, you know the book's divided into two parts each of the parts has different sections devoted to each of these um, each of these protagonists they kind of ebb and flow in a certain way how did it seems like it must it, was it complicated to figure out how to put it together how to put all this together um, yeah I mean I, I sort of there were many different ways I had all the pieces you know spread out on my floor and I'd combine them in different ways and I you know at one point I thought it should go very short chapters between all of them and I you know I was trying to find what what is the rhythm of this book what what pulls you through what creates the mysteries I mean you know when you're I mean the books that I write generally are not heavily plotted in the way that a mystery story is or so the the part of the the mystery is how is the author doling out information and what kind of um, curiosity is it creating on the part of the reader and when I'm writing I'm sort of always thinking about the reader and I'm always thinking about what's making this person turn the page why are they going to stick with me and so part of trying to figure out what the right structure was was what what is going to make a reader feel very satisfied and yet need to know more and and what will um, how how can I leave them hanging so that when I come back to this person they're gonna be eager to come back to that person so it, it, it's a lot of thinking about how to um, create the mystery within structure that you know structure and all the craft aspects of writing are as much the story as the story and so um, so yes, I had very many versions of it. And what I felt like ultimately was that I needed longer swaths of time with each character. I felt like you needed to really invest in the moment of their lives, that, that having little bits of short things was not satisfying ultimately. Um, and then I had this other problem, which is that there was less, there's less Walker material. And initially I thought, oh, that's a problem. Like it should be equal, you know, ABC, ABC. It should be very, and then I, also began to understand that um, just because something is shorter doesn't mean that it's less weighted and that the information in that comes out as it relates to other information that you already know as a reader has a different kind of weight a different sense of time um, just because something is 20 pages as opposed to 40 pages doesn't mean that it, it has a that it's less significant or that it's not going to impact the reader in the same way so um, so you know to me that's the total fun of writing is is playing with the craft I mean once you've got the story it's really about how do you tell that story and what is the most compelling way to engage the reader in in this narrative and Walker although there's less of him he I mean without giving away any of the story he frames the book the book begins with Walker and it ends with Walker so he's got those kind of positions of prominence he's our guide in and he's our our, our guide out yeah well we have to give a huge shout out to my incredible editor who's here named Sarah Hockman she's somewhere that wasn't the way that I handed her the book <laughs> and she said what about and she was a hundred percent right I you're mean, seeing a remarkable thing here folks you're seeing yeah. a writer actually credit an editor. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'm lucky to have a brilliant editor. And she made that suggestion, and, and, and it, it completely it, it made the book work. It created the essential mysteries. It created, you know, it was so right, and I hadn't seen it. I thought, well, you have to start the book with Mary Coyne. It's about Mary Coyne. And, and it was a great sort of, it's almost like a bit of indirection or misdirection, you know, that you're, you're leaving the, the reader a little off base. And then, so, so, I mean, part of, I think, the fun of reading a book like this is figuring out, is it going to fit together? How is it going to fit together? How does this connect? I mean, that's when I read a book like that. I don't, I don't want to know. I want to feel like I don't know. And how are they going to do it? How is it going to work? And when it works, was that satisfying? Did I learn more than just, oh, the puzzle pieces fit together? Did the, did the revelation um, make, was it, was it resonant in a bigger way? So that's the hope. Right. I mean, because when you say the mystery of the structure, I think more of the suspense of the structure, because there is that sense if it's working, when you leave a character and then move into another character's story for 40 or 50 pages, there is in the back of your head that, okay, what, it, you know, what next? You're still sort of in suspense about the character you just left behind. So there's that balancing act too, between the story you've just left and the story that you've right. entered into. Yeah. And then, you know, a reader brings all this information that they've learned and that is going to impact the story that they're reading. They don't just forget about it. You don't just say, oh, well, forget Mary now. I'm going to focus on Walker. It's all tied together. So what about your experience um, as a short story writer in terms of this kind of construction? I mean, not so much the difference between short story and novel, but it seems that in this novel in particular with all of these pieces... Um, and this idea of creating sort of arc within the sections so that they hold together, but they also leave us with a little bit of suspense while we move on to the next one, that there is some interplay maybe between a short fiction writer's sensibility or a story sensibility and a novel sensibility. I wonder if, if that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing that's quite different for me is that, um, you know, in a novel, you really have to allow yourself to take time. I mean, fic short fiction writing is really about concision, and it's about um, choosing very few gestures that tell a story. And whenever I write a lot of short fiction and then I turn to a novel, I have to remind myself that it's okay to breathe, it's okay to take time, it's okay to be inside of a person's head for a really long time, which is not what I allow myself to do in short fiction. But I think I was, I was, I was conscious not to make it feel like three short stories strung together. You know, that, that they had to sort of build upon one another as in this, you know, it had to keep feeling like it was opening out and opening out and opening out. I didn't want to feel like I was closing down on ideas every time I finished a story. So so they are pretty different. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't want to feel like it was just kind of connected short stories at all, which I don't think it is. No, I don't think so either. Thank you. <laughs> I think, um, should we open it up to some questions yeah. from the audience? All right, if you guys raise your hand, we will call on you. Yeah. You have one right here. Um, you, you graciously said that wasn't, um, you generously said that wasn't what the book was like when you handed it to, to your editor. When you handed it to, to your editor, did you think that was the way that it should be? And when she said her idea, was it instantly, oh, oh my God, she's right, or did you have to be convinced? Um, when I handed it to her, no, I mean, I hope that she would make it better, frankly. <laughs> That's the beauty of a good editor, is that, you know, you hope that they, I mean, I didn't know that there was a problem. I didn't see that that, that was a problem. If I had, I probably would have corrected it myself. But, but I think that, um, but you hope that when you have a, a conversation, you know, an interplay with an editor, they're going to see things that you don't see, or they're going to see values that you didn't initially see. Um, no, the minute she said it, I thought, oh, I get it. I like, I totally understood what because it was, it was, it wasn't obvious, but the the ripple effect of it was was suddenly um, very exciting. So it was a, a wonderful 
suggestion. It was kind of maybe made it made the book work. Lucky me. Other quest other questions? Don't be shy, yeah, right over there. I was curious if you guys contemporary Well, um, at the moment it's sort of another a very big canvas that sort of um, Move, moves over a period of a long period of time, but we're, I'm so at the beginning of it that who the hell knows? It could be, you know, it could be science fiction as far as I know at this moment. But that the I, I think so far what I'm thinking is that it's another pretty big canvas of time. So actually, I'm going to jump in because this raises a question for me. How much do you generally know when you start writing a book? Oh, nothing. <laughs> I know like the shreddiest thing, and then I pretend that it's a real idea, and then I, and then I start madly reading and trying to, you know, find little things to hook other ideas on. Now, I, I never start with anything, and I don't know where I'm going, and I, and I try not to. I try really hard. Uh, if an idea comes to me fully formed, it's no, I never work on it because it's done. You know, it's not surprising to me. It doesn't have any mystery to me. It's not going to surprise a reader. It's, you know, so it's really got to be something that I don't know for a really long time until um, I finish it in order for me to feel like it's going to, that, that what I've come to through writing it is going to be interesting and surprising and resonant and so that for the reader it's going to feel like that too. I think if it's something that I know, it, that this is going to happen and that's going to happen and then at the end they're going to die or whatever, I think that um, it's boring for me and it probably is going to be boring for the reader because there's nothing, you know, I think when you read a book and you can feel the author working their way through it, you can, f and not that, the, not that it's, you know, kind of, um, not clean or, or or that it's awkward, but when you, f you sometimes you can feel the I don't know, I'm not saying this right, you can feel both, I mean at the same time you want to have an authorial hand guiding you through it, you also want to feel that there's a level of surprise on the part of the writer as well. Right, the living line, you want that yeah. sense where you sort of go, where did that come from? I didn't see that coming. Right, and you exactly. have the sense that they didn't. Exactly. Uh, question over there. As a younger author, <laughs> thank you. started writing I was not um, I was not tortured by not knowing you're standing next to my husband so maybe he can answer this question <laughs> how much torture was involved but I don't but I don't think that I I knew I understood as much about the craft when I started writing I think that when I started writing I was a little more naive isn't the right word but I wasn't as I didn't have as I didn't have as much you know an understanding of how how to use the craft how to use the elements of craft um, so, uh, I think I was more more focused on story itself than on how can I use the craft to tell the story. I think that's something that I've grown to understand more that that those elements are as much a part of the the story that as anything. Um, but no, I've never known. I mean, I think part of it is just I'm not a plot oriented person, so that it never comes to me as plot. It never comes to me like as a full one, you know, first, second, third act or whatever. You know, and it's frustrating. That's incredibly frustrating because you know you want to feel like the, the impulse, the impatient impulse, is to want to know that it's going to work. 
but the, the I, I don't think that way. I think about characters and I think about what they do next and then I look at what they did and then I try to figure out who they are because of what they did and then I figure out what the next thing they're going to do is. I mean, my whole process is like, what action can I throw in front of these people that they have to trip over so that I can figure out what they're going to do and then I can figure out who they are and then I can figure out what their story is. And so it's a very like piece by piece by piece. Yeah. Um, Marissa, I hope it's not a silly question, but how did you arrive at Mary Coyne? The name? The name, yeah, Vera Dare. What? Um, Mary Coyne I arrived at because my friend Rachel Kushner was telling me a story about somebody named Johnny Coyne. And I didn't, for a long time, I just said, oh, what a great name. And then three months later I said, Rachel, I've thought of the greatest name for my character. <laughs> and she looked at me like, no, nah, I thought of that name. But, um, <laughs> Um, and Mary, you know, it's funny because now when I look at the name, I think, okay, there's significance in the name. At the time, you know, names for me just have to be something that um, I don't trip over. You know, it has to be something that has a little bit of frisson for me, but it also has to be something that doesn't have too much meaning for me because if it has too much meaning, then it's too burdened. And it ha so f names for me just need to sort of almost have a kind of tabula rasa quality. But as I began, as I wrote more and more of the book, I mean, I think one of the things that's so compelling about the photograph is that it recalls for us the sort of um, Mother Mary uh, figurations in paintings. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you often see paintings where Mary is sitting with the infant Jesus and there's two little angels on either side of her. And I don't think that um, Dorothy Lang, uh, I don't know if she was conscious of that, but um, it, it's certainly, so I don't, so that I called her Mary, was that subconsciously evoking that? I don't know, maybe. And Coyne, you know, also, I was thinking a lot about how she became a, a thing of value. And she was a, she's a commodity. Um, but I think, the, but it wasn't why I called her Mary Coyne. I, I just called her Mary Coyne, so those things might have been subconscious. And Vera Dare, um, I don't know. I just, you know, it seemed like, oh, there's a good name I can, I can live with and it's not going to irk me every time I write it. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ray? Um, Ray, I can't hear you. Walker is, is, is somebody you made up. Why did you choose to go with the man? I think I just wanted to have a man in there. I did. I mean, very consciously. I just I, he came to me as a man, and I thought I, I don't want to write a book that's only about you know that only has women's voices. I wanted to have a man's voice in there. And also, well, no, that wouldn't make any sense. But yeah, that's why I just wanted a man. <laughs> yeah. I remember a moment when you were writing this book, and it was done, and you um, said. Oh my God, I'm having a nurse breakdown. I stayed up all last night and the night before and I went back to the library and I researched the whole thing. I did. What was going on? What was going on? <laughs> These are all my friends saying, what the hell are you... At the very end of this process, when it came time to copy edit the book and it was going to go into production and it was going to be like done finished, I think I found this... I woke up one night and I went, oh my God, they weren't growing oranges in that part of California in that year. <laughs> it was like this horrible moment. And I... And then I thought, what else did I miss? So I I went back to the library and I got all the books out and I reread all not all but I reread a lot of my research, especially about Central California in that period, um, in this kind of crazy like manic two weeks. It was insane um, because I just wanted to. I mean, I wanted to get it right enough so that the fiction stuff 
you know, rests on the reality. I mean, I think when you're reading a book, you accept that a lot of it's invented if something fundamental is real. But if the fundamental thing is wrong, you're going, well, no, that, that's not, you know, the road doesn't go through that town. I know that. I've driven that road. So you have to, you know, so it's, so yeah, it was a little bit insane. But I did catch a few things, so it was worth it. And then it made me feel that much more solid, you know, that, okay, we can, the book can be done. I can stop this in, in now. But yeah. It was really a horrible moment. I thought, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So I know that a lot of novelists don't like their work to be called, and it's historically called historical fiction. I think you don't really want it labeled as historical fiction either. Can you um, this historical Well, I mean, I, I don't, I, it's, it's a novel that takes place in history. I, I guess historical fiction for me, um, e evokes, I don't even know what I think about that question. You know, if you want to call it historical fiction, it's fine. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess you kind of want it not to be um, mar marginalized in any way because some people don't like to read historical fiction. I don't, um, I guess, I don't think of it that way. It, historical fiction is not something I really enjoy reading because I'm always going, well, how do you know that's what Mary Lincoln thought? I mean, I have this very like, um, but so no, I think of it more like the way I think of, I mean, not to compare myself at all, but you know, the way I think of DeLillo's Libra or, or Ragtime or any of those books where I don't think of them as historical fiction. I think of them as literature set in time, in a certain time. So I guess for me, there's some distinction, but um, I, I'm not trying to illuminate a piece of history. I'm trying to tell the story of characters. So I guess maybe that's the difference for me. But you know, that might be very specious and you know, who knows. In the front, yeah. Um, kind of a related question. Um, when you started out, you were inspired by this real photograph that depicted a real person and a real photographer. And if I understood you correctly, you thought perhaps you were going to write an historical piece of fiction about those people, but then decided to create fictional characters. No, I never, I never thought that I was. I never, I never thought that I was going to tell the real story of Dorothea Lange. I always knew that it was going to be fictional. Oh, I see. Yeah, so I never, I never wanted, I mean, to me, that would be like, then write a nonfiction book about those people, and there already are some good ones. So then my question is, why use that picture? Why not? Invent the picture? Invent the picture. Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, because I guess it, you know, what, what was interesting to me was to try to weave together the two things, to try to weave together something that's real in history and, and this and fictional invention, and to think, try to figure out how fiction can illuminate history. I mean, I think one of the things that those of us who like fiction feel like is that sometimes it can tell us more about reality in a funny way than reality does, or it's something that's non-fictional. You know, you can read a book about, you know, the human brain, but maybe if you read a fictional book about that same subject, you might have a different way into it. So I guess that's just my bent as a fiction writer, is that I'm interested in how the invented world can illuminate the real world. So it was, for me, it was interesting to try to um, weave those two things together. It's the buzz of implication, right? That's why I think E.M. Forster's line, that fiction gives you the buzz of implication Ooh. all the time. So I've used that many, many times. Now it's yours. Okay. Um, I think we have time for one more question. So go ahead. Hi, Lynn. So uh, I do want to say that I love your, your talking about the question of motherhood. Your comments on that were a little bit illuminating uh, about you <laughs> as a mom. It was wonderful to listen to that. And also, it, it, a lot of what you've been talking about has got me charged to 
Good. Uh, yeah. That's the point. <laughs> An example of that for me would be when you were talking about the question of are we just uh, a genetic circumstance or is there something else? Vortex. Vortex. So my question for you is as the creator of this piece of work, and I realize the answer may evolve and change over time. So my question is, in this moment today, what is the, the, the most important driving reason for presenting this to the world? Oh my god. <laughs> it's a perfect closing question. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of things. No, it's okay. I mean, you know, why do I write? Because it's, um, why do I write this particular book? Because um, the, when, I, when I thought of the idea, well, it's, why do I write this one is why I write anyone. Because um, the, when I, the way that I um, frame my life is through writing. One of the ways that I frame my life is through writing. That's one of the ways that I exist is through writing something down and, and forming story. I mean that's one of the um, other people run marathons, other people work at different things but for me writing is the frame through which I experience life and through which I think about life and through which I um, try to put together the things I feel about living. So that's why I write books and um, and the fun of, of writing this book is to um, say, here's something that you think you know, but you don't. And I'm not saying that this is the story of Florence Thompson or Dorothea Lang. I'm just saying any, any image that we see, any, any, anything that we take for granted, um, look harder and think more and think more deeply and what could it be, not what, what is it. So I guess that's what, what this book is for me. The short answer to that very enormous, scary question. <laughs> and, a, and a good answer. Well, thank you, Marissa. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.